Okay, thank you for tuning into the third episode of the Curious Podcast, the topic just generic enough to let me talk about whatever I want, whenever I want. Today, we're going to talk about something I think is interesting, and that is the Democratic candidates for the President of the United States. And I'm joined here by my good friend, Craig Nash. Craig, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Uh, Craig, I I consider myself... um, I'm a spectator when it comes to politics. I kind of look at politics the same way I do sports. And I don't mean that to to disrespect what it is, but... So you're not going to announce who you're voting for? Oh, I, oh yeah, I'll tell you who I'm going to... I would vote today. We'll get to that. Okay. But um, I, I get the sense that in some ways you're similar in that I, I feel like you've taken a step back from politics, at least in when I first met you years ago. Um, maybe you feel that's inaccurate. Uh, but... You have this over me. You worked for Kay Hutchinson, right? Yeah, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, many, many years ago, who was a U.S. senator from Texas. Okay. And um, you just have always had a keen eye, I feel like. You you paid pretty close attention. Well, I, I grew up in a family that was fairly political, and so we always watched the news before it was even you know 24-hour news, so we always kept up with politics pretty closely. Um, and... I may have conflated different times when you've talked about your biography, but you come from a, what you would describe, blue dog Democrat family, right? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my dad was a, a union worker in a factory, and so everything that came with that back in the early, early 80s is what we were. Uh, and so, did you say blue dog? Yeah. Okay. Is that right? Uh, or is so, it yellow dog? So, the, the term yellow dog actually refers Sorry. To, to folks who... Um, will vote Democrat regardless of who who's on the ticket. So okay. the old joke is uh, the, they would vote for a yellow dog if it was on the ticket. I, there's various, you know, attributions okay. to that. You know why I said but that. a blue dog is something that I have identified with at some point in the past, and maybe not so much anymore. But So the term blue dog kind of came, uh, blue dog Democrat kind of came in fashion, I guess in the late 80s or early 90s when there were still... Democrats who were fairly conservative, um, and so um, it was kind of a riff on the yellow dog thing. And they, there was even I think a caucus of what they called the blue dog uh, uh, representatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chet Edwards, who was our representative here, would have been considered a blue dog. In fact, I think he was part of that coalition, and, oh. which are was more conservative. It was kind of the last of the conservative Democrats. Okay. You know, uh, that was a, a slip. Um, Scott Shelton's handle on, I think, Instagram is Blue Dog Scott. Okay. And so I conflated that in Yellow Dog. Well, but so that's helpful. Are, yeah, so there are there is the term Blue Dog Democrats. Okay, well, the more you know. I didn't know any yeah. of that. Um, you came from that. When I met you, you uh, obviously you had already said you were for Kay Hutchinson. You were a uh, registered Republican, a voting Republican. Uh, yeah, so here in Texas, there's no such thing as... Uh, as party registration, okay, uh, and I've gotten a lot of arguments over people over that, um, but this is one of those things where I know more than people do. <laughs> okay, um, so you, you do, um, you know, you have to make a choice in primaries on who to vote for, but there's there's nothing on our voter registration that um, where you pick a pick a side. And so anytime people, anytime someone says I'm a registered Republican, well, I ask, 
are you in Texas? And they say yes, and I say no, because hmm. you don't register for parties here um, like you do in some other states. I don't know what all other states are like that. But yes, when you first met me, I was a Republican. Uh, really soon after I graduated high school, um, uh, I rebelled against my family, and doing that was to become a Republican. Okay. Um, and now, um, would you describe yourself as a Democrat? You know, I always, I always hate it when people say I'm not a Republican, but they vote Republican most of the time, 99% of the time, and the same thing. People say, you know, I don't associate with the party, but I vote, but they vote, you know, almost yeah. 100% of the time. So um, I would say since 2016, you could adequately describe me as a Democrat. Okay. Um, so you've worn both shoes, so to speak, in times when those those monikers meant different things, I suspect, too, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk first about just debate itself. Did you watch the debate the other night? I did. Uh, I did fall asleep during, I think, the closing remarks. Okay, I, I could tell you what was said. It wasn't... Well, I, I, once I sensed they were moving towards closing remarks, that kind of gave my eyelids permission to close. close. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I was thinking one of the best moments for me in the debate was when, I think, Cory Booker, um, Kamala Harris, and, and Joe Biden... We're talking about black voters. Yeah. And, um, and because I thought uh, Cory Booker has gotten off script in, in the best way possible. Um, and it it made me wonder, and I had this question going into the night too, do debates really serve something helpful in the primary process? Not just because you have so many candidates, but because you're not really getting a, a unscripted version of just yeah. anyone. And the answers aren't much beyond what you can find in the talking points yeah. of their websites. Yeah, I think now, not just the primaries, but the general election as well, the only purpose debates serve is to give candidates an opportunity to give a zinger sure. that's kind of memorable. To make it marketable. To make it marketable. This would be um, Beto, hell yeah, I'm going to take your guns. Yeah, exactly. And okay. also kind of serves the purpose of um, uh, of allowing like a lower tier candidate to raise their profile. Will this be... Pete, Mayor Pete? Uh, yeah, certainly over the course of the, I don't know how, dozens of debates, it seems like there's already been. I think he's probably gotten more um, traction because for the debates. Um, yeah. Um, but, but in general, the debates um, are mostly for ratings, I think, and for, um, yeah, like I said. To kind of familiarize us and yeah, keep us yeah. interested. Um, okay, let's try and I, I want to do as many of the candidates as we can. And I, I want you to feel free to be as judgmental and candid as you want to. And I'll try and put myself out there as well. So are you just going to list the candidates that were on stage on? If you, like, I, I suppose um, if you want to talk about Julian Castro okay. or. Uh, so there are whoever. a lot of people I don't know. You know, there's so many of them. Allegedly, Mayor Bloomberg is going to throw his hat. In the, yeah. So anybody you want. But let's start with um, Cory Booker. Okay. Do you like him? So you mentioned Booker about uh -huh. this debate. So um, uh, I'll lay my cards out on the table. Bef going into this debate, I was pretty solid uh, Warren. Okay. Um, but he definitely gave me a look on, on this one. Uh -huh. um, I, he got my attention more this time, um, and he made me consider him a little bit more. So I think he did a great job. Um, he uh, Every time I'd heard him in the past, he kind of um, makes me think of a frat guy. Okay. Um and he did, you know, he did go to Stanford and he was a Rhodes Scholar. And, but he just kind of had this air of um, 
you know, when politicians talk about let's just get along, um, yeah, it often sounds um, like someone just avoiding conflict. It often sounds kind of like an unhealthy Enneagram Seven. Okay, you know, let's just get along, and why do we have to argue? And um, so he kind of had that vibe for me before this. Um, but he, I don't, I don't know what it was. I can't remember the exact details, but um, he was a little more aggressive, um, which I appreciated. Uh, so he, he, so to answer your earlier question, for me, for people who pay attention, the debates can serve the purpose of, you know, a candidate that you weren't really thinking about before, um, kind of raising a profile. And I should say here too, like I'm already thinking of people. This is my Enneagram six thinking of people already critiquing yeah. so, so I'm speaking to them now I, I should say you know one of um, I go back and forth between you know valuing kind of ideological purity on you know basically agreeing with the things I agree with and on just recognizing that well first of all um, there's something pretty important about the 2020 election sure <laughs> uh, that's uh, that kind of transcends whether or not I agree with the candidate. And so Booker is obviously ideologically not in the same lane as Warren is. So I just want to recognize, I know my hypocrisy here. Okay. Um, so just laying that out there ahead of time. Yeah, I'll say this about Booker. I may have mentioned this to you the, the other day. Um, you know, the last, I think it was the October debate, maybe. Yeah, and he, he seemed what I described a little schmarmy to me. Yeah. Um, his positivity seemed a little over the top, as was, I think, Tom Steyer, where this this comment about I just want to talk about and remind every candidate up here is more qualified than the current president but um, two things happened to me well one thing mainly is I listened to Cory Booker get interviewed by Krista Tippett and she, he's the only politician she's ever had on her show on being and um, really yeah his wow. his talk about vulnerability and his hope for kind of the future of politics was pretty inspiring. It, it, I guess what happened is it made some of that, what I perceived as Schmarman is more believable to me. Yeah, yeah. I think he really is that way. So I read a story about him, um, and I'm not sure if you know this, that you know he grew up in a pretty wealthy suburb, suburb of Newark and post-college moved to the inner city. Yeah. Um, and some of the critiques he had of people in those neighborhoods that he moved to uh, was exactly what you're saying, like, this just you seem too over the top positive to you use the word schmarmy they probably didn't use that word but you know similar um uh yeah so oh and someone in this article mentioned this that one of his good friends i actually it was someone who worked for him said um like all these like really good stories about him kept coming coming out um like he you know he lived in this uh, he moved into this low-income apartment that he lived in for years um uh, he apparently like was caught saving a dog from dying or something, you know, like these stories that kind of end up being apocryphal type stories. And, you know, one of his, someone close to him is like, you know, come on, Corey, you're a little bit over the top, nice guy here. <laughs> and I think there was some similar sentiment from other, uh, uh, senators who, um, who didn't know what to think about him when he came in, but then had realized, oh, this really is a genuinely nice guy. Like yeah. He, yeah. You know, so this was going to be my question then is, I, I, I am a person who likes the rhetoric of pointing out what we have in common. It sort of cheerleads those feel-good moments. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, though, because the, the political climate has gotten so visceral and is so poisonous to me, 
at this point on both sides, but um, our president seems to be unique mm-hmm. in, in history. I wonder, do we need that kind of leadership a little bit more right now? And can that work? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, we had that under Obama. Right. Um, and it didn't work. I mean, it, he got elected twice, but I don't know if you call that successfully uniting the country. When you say it didn't work, it didn't galvanize a bipartisan base? It produced Donald Trump, I think. Uh, say more about that. Um, well, it's probably not completely fair that it produced Donald Trump because obviously the Trump phenomenon is a lot more complicated than that. Um, uh, I might stumble here a little bit. You might have to edit, edit it. Some That's of this fine. Out. Can... Yeah. Um, I I think it's just fair to say that um, regardless of how much a politician talks about uniting people, our current two-party system does not allow that to happen. Hmm. Um, and I think that's, for me, that's more the source of um, the vitriol that's going on than anything else now, as I've kind of reflected on it a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, in other countries where you have three and four and five viable parties, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people think if we just get, got a third party, then that would cut down on on all the you know drama and the hate and politics but the point isn't necessarily that we need three parties um where where it just gives us another corner for another third of the country to run to but the benefit of having multiple parties is you can you as a human or as a voter you can hold multiple positions on things and have um you know one party represent your position on one thing, but a second on another and a third on another. And so it creates this situation where it requires civility a mm-hmm. little bit more. Although, you know, countries that have five and six different parties, their, their, their uh, houses of, you know, representatives don't look very civil. But essentially you have to, um, you have to realize, okay, I'm weighing certain things against the other. And, and every issue doesn't fall into two buckets. And so as it, every issue's fallen into two buckets over time, and you and I have talked about this, um, we identify more with our, with our tribe than we necessarily do with the issue, all the issues that are tribe. But over time, we start to adopt those issues. I think an example would be, you know, Trump has done things that go against Republican orthodoxy for the last 30 years, but people are still like sticking with their team. I'm kind of rumbling here and mumbling. No, I think that makes sense. And it all answers Uh, that question. It goes back to your question about, you know, talk of unity. Um, I mean, I'd rather have someone talk like that than not talk like that. Um, Like I don't want a, um, I don't want a democratic Trump to come along. Sure. Uh, You know, running for president who says hateful things about the other side in the same way mm-hmm. and with the same amount of like aggression carelessness yeah um but at the same time i don't know how helpful it is you know to have a kumbaya candidate either right uh let's talk about um Andrew yang um if I could summarize in him in one word, it would be data. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he, he talked about whether it was um, 
kind of defense spending and gathering AI data or um, sort of fiscal policy. And then um, I, I really love his math pin. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. refuses to wear the American flag. And, um, do you think he's too mechanistic to get elected? I mean, it, every, every statistic says he won't, but um, or do you find him at all intriguing, I guess? He's very intriguing in that he, I think he's the only candidate, maybe the first, I don't want to say viable because he's probably polling at zero or 1%, but he's probably the first serious candidate ever who's recognized that we're in a different world. Hmm. Um, you know, even Sanders and Warren's economic policy is still based on kind of an old um, industrial revolution type economy. Um, he seems to recognize, hey, we're moving into a new place where um, work is different, or, or the economy is different, the, the you know currency is different that we use, but we're still um, treating work like industrial revolution mm -hmm. um and i don't know all he's way smarter on all that than i am but he seems to recognize hey we've got to figure out a way to uh he seems the most ready for a transformative moment hmm. for economic issues i don't i i'm not I, honestly not that familiar with his stances on other things i'll tell you what this is the first debate where i, I warmed up to him a little bit and there were two things that happened the first was um in the closing statements, he he made this comment that, um, you know, first of all, what sane person would run for president? Yeah. Which I think that's a statement to identify with most of America. We realize mm -hmm. how absurd and uh, that position is and how narcissistic you need to be. And so I, I, it was very believable that he had a kind of reluctance that made me more eager to listen to him. But the other thing was... Um, after um, Tom Steyer got beat down a little bit by others for being a billionaire and spending money, he actually stuck up yeah, for him on yeah. stage about the the um, global warming stuff. And uh, I just appreciate it. You don't see too many other people use their platform to affirm other people, yeah. especially in a moment like that. Yeah. He's also a millionaire as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I don't think I, I read up a little. I mean, he's he's probably not even the second wealthiest person on the stage, but he is pretty wealthy. Um. Next question is, or since I mentioned Tom Steyer, uh, he's interesting to me in that he has been pretty fervent in suggesting that, and this feels dramatic, but I guess it's not if you consider the problem, that um, not just that global warming or climate change will be his number one issue, but it's the existential threat of our time. Mm -hmm. um, part of me really likes that he, he's honest about that being the most important thing. Um, I think globally, that is the most important mm -hmm. issue. Do you think it's it's tenable for a candidate to run with climate change that far out in front of their platform? No. Can you say more? <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, so I'm a believer in climate change and a believer that we have to do something to stop it. Um, uh, I also, so this is one of, the, one of the things about me having been in both camps at various times of my life. Um, I, I understand that um, it's not just the other camp where that's just not a, a driver for, um, to vote. Um, it's even in the current camp that I'm in, uh, the majority of the people who vote are of an older generation who does not, I mean, for certain reasons, it's just not number one, two, or three on their list of values. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but I'm saying based on what I think needs to happen in 2020, I, 
I just don't think, um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it needs to be a candidate that says, yes, this is the existential threat that you have to make your number one issue in order to get young people to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, the jury's still out on that. I, yeah. Um, okay. I thought the second most interesting moment in the debate was um, Tulsi Gabbard's fight with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, was it with Pete? Or yeah. With- um, well, Kamala she had Harris. several moments, yeah. the, the Harris, but I think where she um, accused him of saying that we were going to go into Mexico with our troops. Oh, um, and he she accused, accused him of yes. saying that. I, I must have missed that part. So I, I get, well, then fine. We can point to the Harris one. I'm, this isn't just my opinion. A few of the commentators from MSNBC said of the candidates, she performed the worst. I'm very suspicious of her Assad relationship. Um, and maybe I make too much of that, but here's the thing, and I hate to do this because I, I want to respect all of you. She just is the candidate I like the least right now. So and, this is pretty. Th- Go ahead. You were well, and I was going to say, um, I, I, is she really running for president? Yeah, is my question. So do you know her story? Uh, that she's just that she's a veteran and from Hawaii is all. I okay, know. so it's uh, she of everyone on the stage, she has the most complicated and mysterious story of anyone. So I, I want to preface this by saying. I also will not be voting for her regardless, but I'm probably about to say some things that I'm not going to be quite as hard on her as other people do. So, you know, she's Hindu. Uh, She's the first Hindu elected uh, to Congress, Uh, but she grew up in a, um, like a, like a far, I don't want to, I don't know if far right is the correct term, but like a, basically a, a sect of Hinduism that's basically a cult in Hawaii. Uh, and her family had this guru. I, I've done some reading since then. Yeah. Well, actually, I've been looking. At, so there's so much things that have made me just wonder about her. Um, but so her family grew up in this, what most people would call a cult. Um, most of the people surrounding her are still a part of that. And she's never done anything to like disassociate herself with this cult. And it's all it's around this guru whose name is Chris Butler. Um, and it's, and I'm not that familiar with all the sects of, um, Hinduism, but, uh, it's, it's kind of loosely connected to Hare Krishna. Okay. Um, they say it's connected to Krishna, but not, not Hare. I I don't know how all that works, but, um, uh, very anti LGBTQ. Okay. Um, but also pretty, um, uh, pretty pacifist. But not necessarily pacifist, but just kind of anti-foreign interventionist. Um, and there's there's so much other things to do with that. Um, but she has done nothing like to disassociate herself with that. Which I want to be fair for that to say, you know, I don't think there should be a religious test on sure on, on candidates. Maybe not dissimilar to Jeremiah Wright and Barack Obama. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and you know, you and I have joked about this too at times. You know, anytime you talk about people who have crazy religious beliefs. Well, most of us require our candidate to believe that a guy was born of a virgin and raised from the dead, right? Uh, which is pretty <laughs> crazy, uh, which I believe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's hard for me to look at, you know, someone else. And say, but but um, some of those, uh, some of that is concerning a little bit. But the other concerning thing is, um, you know, Hillary Clinton came out kind of and said, uh, it seems like uh, the Russians are grooming Gabbard to be kind of their their tool for this election. Yeah. 
Um, and it is interesting. So there's so many things. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of Russian bot activity around her campaign, like pushing, uh, pushing stuff around her. And then secondly, uh, um, you know, I haven't seen around anywhere, like at, we're not at the point where you're seeing like campaign advertisements, like in billboards and things like that. I was in, uh, you know, I was on vacation about a month ago and I was in uh, uh, Greenville, South Carolina. And in the middle of nowhere was a Tulsi Gabbard billboard. Hmm. And by like nowhere, I mean like driving from uh, uh, like one rural town to, to another rural town. And it just seems really fishy. So there's so much mystery around her. The other thing about her is um, she in some ways is a little bit like a Trump figure, um, not in like content, but um, her, None of her like policy positions are consistently uh, are consistently fall within like Democratic Party politics. Okay. Um, so she's anti-interventionist. So in a way, she's she's very Ron Paulish in okay. that way. Um, she has a history of being anti-LGBTQ, but she's kind of switched on that. And I think the way she's answered that has been really great. She says, you know, I'm like a lot of people who grew up more conservative who have had a change of heart. Um, but yeah, she's really intriguing because she's a veteran. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you. I mean, I think any attempt to um, garner compassion for somebody based on their complexity of their narrative is, is helpful. So I'm glad that you shared all that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You, you said this stuff about Hillary um, propping her up as a potential. Well, and I tool. do want to say this, like I, um, like I, I don't think, there's anything nefarious from Tulsi Gabbard. Like sure. I don't think she's an evil person or anything. Yeah. But I think that the complexity of her candidacy creates all sorts of issues. I've also noticed a lot of my like really conservative friends on social media are saying things like she's the one person that um, Democrats should be nominating. Which is fascinating because even though most of her stuff doesn't fall in line with Democratic Party orthodoxy, it certainly doesn't fall within Republican Party orthodoxy as well. So there, it just seems like there's something fishy going on. Well, that may bear witness to what you were saying about um, people not really following platforms anymore, but really yeah. people. Uh, I, I tried to find the name as you were speaking. Uh, there were Terry Host. Or Terry Gross hosted a show last week called How Internet Trolls and Online Extremists Are Hijacking American Politics. Whoever the guest was had pointed out that, that Gabbard is actually the, the front runner for white supremacists right now. Yeah, so she got an endorsement from David Duke, from Steve Bannon. Right. Um, and, that, you know, she refused to sign something condemning Steve Bannon whenever Trump had him in, in his administration. And so there are some concerns there. And a lot of those issues stem from this kind of religious sect that she's a sure yeah well that's all helpful and or I, was or i don't know is or was i want to give everybody a fair shake so yeah. i'm glad that you yeah, shared I, I spent that. a lot of time on her just because she's really fascinating and enigmatic for sure yeah um so that kind of leaves the leaders so to speak mm-hmm. um do you like pete Buttigieg? i do he seems to me and and i want to be careful because I don't want to imply anything other than what I mean in complimenting him of the candidates to be the most articulate, or at least he has speaks with the most ease on a debate kind of platform. Yeah, those sorts of platforms definitely play to his strengths. You had also told me you appreciate the complexity of his narrative. 
and that yeah. he has these pairings that are interesting. He's, uh, of course, a, a gay man who served in the military. Mm-hmm. He's a small town mayor. He yeah. doesn't have Washington experience. Um, how do you think he's had so much success, given the relatively small kind of place he started from? Yeah, so I, I did say I like him, um, and he would be in my top three or four probably. But to answer your question, um, I think the answer is because he's white. Um, you know, as I've been reading up on candidates, m- most of his kind of biography, except for the fact that he's a gay man, is uh, the same story of Julian Castro and Cory Booker. Hmm. They're, they've both been mayors. I think, well, Castro, I don't know if he's been a mayor. I know he was in... Oh, he I was, just know his I, HUD stuff. Yeah, San Antonio. I can never remember if his... If, which office he or his brother held. Right. Um, uh, but Booker was a mayor. Um, mm-hmm. All three of them were Rhodes Scholars. They're all young. They're all bright. Um, I hate to use this term, especially when all three of them are minor- minorities of some kind. They're all articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, but it, it does beg the question, why is the youngest of those... Hmm. Um, who's had the least amount of um, experience in politics of those three he gets the most traction Hmm. and I don't want to see racism behind everything but I certainly think it's like there's latent racism in this that will give um, three people who have a relatively equal resume will give the white guy sure and you know, to speak to the minority status, his is the one minority status that you can't see, right. unless his husband's standing next to him. Yeah. Um, do you think he? You think he would take a vice president? I mean, I guess that's a lot of speculation. I guess. Do you think he's in it ultimately for something like that, or do you think he has a? F- yeah, I think all of them, um, except for Bernie Sanders, and maybe Warren. Well, and certainly, except for the three <laughs> post seventy. Yeah. Know, um, I think all of them are in it for the future. Yeah. Whether it be this year or the next year or the next time around. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, interestingly, after the... Oh, I forgot Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. Uh, sh- she's probably the one I have the, the most neutral opinion on. Um, I know she's probably, of all of them, the most conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she... She kind of touts her ability to win in a red state. I think she said she won in, uh, well, this, she's from your area, right? Minnesota, yeah. yeah she's a Minnesota yeah. senator. Uh, she talked about winning um, the district that, what is the lady, the religious? Amon? No. No, she's Michigan? Uh, no, in, in, in from Minnesota. Wisconsin, the lady who um, is like a Sarah Palin type figure. She was a congressman. Tammy Baldwin? No. I don't know. No, I, I, I'll remember it. But really conservative congressman, but she kind of touts winning her district. Um, so you remember that expose that came out on her several months ago? No. Uh, I say expose. It, 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 it basically exposed that she is really hard to work for. Hmm. Um, and uh, like supposedly legendarily hard to work for like the story told stories about uh her ye- yelling so much at staffers and one staffer got her a salad but forgot to get oh her that's right and so she like in defiance ate it with her like comb yeah or something so you know 
there certainly a certain amount of sexism and the fact that those stories come out about sure. women more more often than not. Um, but you know, she kind of begs the question you asked earlier: is, is is this a time for someone who is more middle of the road, um, yeah, or really more conservative? I would say she's even more conservative than Biden, who's kind of the more conservative viable candidate. Well, that was what I was going to point to when I started talking about Warren. Is um, Chris Matthews post was interviewing Amy Klobuchar, and he said this is really a, a race between two different type of Democrats, and he grouped her, Amy Klobuchar. Pete Buttigieg and um, Joe Biden in the cabinet said, and then you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, and everyone else trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah, but Klobuchar is very kind of robust in this language of we need to work with kind of the moderate notion of, yeah. um, especially with fiscal policy stuff, and yeah. that you can't you can't do this. Do you think that's true, or do you think somebody... I, you know, I'll go back and forth on this. So um, I think the only place that bipartisanship or multi-partisanship can work in U.S. politics is on the local level hmm. where um, where your labels don't really matter as much and where, you know, like like a mayor, um, stuff that a mayor deals with that, you know, potholes are not, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, it's not a partisan issue. Um, as long as uh, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House and Mitch McConnell is the leader of the Senate... I don't think it's going to matter how bipartisan we are or how, how bipartisan the person at the top of the ticket is. Yeah. No, I think that's probably true. Uh, Cory Booker seems to tow a similar line. At least he did when there, there was talk of health care. You know, he, he said he doesn't want to get rid of privatized insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you indicated, there seems to be a kind of a myriad of approaches to this, this divide within the party. Uh, I want to turn to ageism, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Uh, so I want to be very candid. Um, I, we're going to talk to John Thornton a little bit, and he'll be kind of frustrated with some of this, I think, with Senator Sanders. But I just think about George W. Bush and Barack Obama, who are the two presidents I've had a chance to pay attention to in my, mm-hmm. in my lifetime. And if you look at pictures of them in year one, mm-hmm. and you look at pictures of them in, after you know eight years, yeah. um, you can see their bodies... Mm-hmm. have bore the stress of this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, these, these guys may, and, and Gal, Elizabeth Warren, may crush I would them. say in fairness to that, too, they were both elected at times when, I mean, today at Facebook, everyone's posting the two-year yeah. challenge. Yeah. So <laughs> I wouldn't, I mean, that is true. It certainly ages people more than, but I wouldn't read too much into that because I've seen pictures of myself eight years ago. Eight as years, well. okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I do have serious concerns about Joe Biden. Yeah. And maybe I just didn't pay attention to how he, he spoke before he was a candidate, but he gets on stage and I just, I mean, I don't have, this is ages. He just doesn't seem to recollect. Yeah. So I would say, uh, you know, he's run for president a lot and it's kind of what might be interesting. Who knows how this next year will happen, but if he doesn't get the nomination, um, it, his, the history history of Joe Biden may be that he ran for president every year that he couldn't get elected except for the one that he could have gotten elected. Hmm. You mean 16? Uh, 16, yeah. Um, but, if, I mean, if you go back, back and look at old things of him, he's always been like that a little bit, like kind of – and that's kind of the charm of him. That, um, 
you know, a lot of people who love Trump like to say that he's not a politician and mm-hmm. he, he talks like he's not a politician. Well, the same thing is true for Biden as well. Like, you know, he'd rather just shoot the bull over beer or, um, or even probably in a rally. I think he probably does better in a rally when he can control the, the, the narrative. But he's never been someone who's like can stick with the point and stay. And he's stum- yeah, he kind of talks like we all talk. Right. Um, and, and in some ways, folks like um, certainly Obama and even as inarticulate as Bush was, had, he had good speech writers. Um, you know, and then Clinton, we've been a little bit spoiled to have. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I, Reagan as well. I will say this, and, and I do, as a, insofar as I understand his personal story, have a great deal of respect for Joe Biden. Um, particularly in how his approach to loss and grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, you know, we think about like how I think George W. Bush was just crucified for his uh, lack of rhetorical ability and yeah. his constant screw-ups. I will say, Joe, if, if we're true to our kind of commitment to um, make fun of politicians kind of um, without partisan notions, then we should see every kind of isms in four or five, the calendars, the SNL skits, everything, if he gets elected. And and maybe that does make him more endearing. I think there are people who like George W. Bush precisely for yeah, that reason. Yeah. You know what's interesting is uh, one of my favorite things about the Obama years were the Onion articles about Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they kind of created this caricature of this kind of, um, you know, 1970s playboy who uh, uh, walked around without a shirt and loved to smoke weed and... Uh, listen, listen to uh, <laughs> Dokken and and uh, Ozzy Osbourne and all yeah. that, and that he's kind of living in that. <laughs> What's interesting is um, they stopped that, and um, they they haven't really found a new kind of angle for him. Like they haven't done stories, and I've just been waiting for those stories to come out. And, you know, that's kind of a trivial thing, but I think that says a lot about how we think about people by what our satirist kind of decide to pinpoint. Sure. I, and they're still trying to figure that out for a lot of the candidates. Like Saturday Night Live, have you seen her, uh, uh, Warren's, like Kate McKinnon's Warren? Yes. It's, you know, she's trying to find that thing, and I don't think she's quite found it yet. Uh-huh. And I think she's found a thing that's not really there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, that's just an interesting thing to think about is how we make fun of politicians. Uh, that, that's a good point. Um, I do want to talk about Warren now. I think, of course, everything I could say about her, it, it seems like you could say about um, Bernie Sanders, and we'll talk to John in a few minutes about Bernie. But I want to talk about the wealth tax, and I've, I've tried to read as much as I can with the time I've had. And um, it seems like there's mixed reviews. You know, her plan, she misspoke the other night when she said $50 billion. It's two cents um, on every dollar over $50 million, and then additional one cent. Over $50 million? Yeah. Okay. That, that was interesting because she like, said not a lot billion, of <laughs> And I'm like, well, that's not. And, and then even then, the way she worded it was uh, after $50 billion, yeah. just two cents. Yeah. She, like, well, that's, <laughs> that might give you, you know, three or $400. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it was a, a red fact check. Okay, it was yeah. $50 million and then it is an additional one, one cent, so 3% on every dollar over a billion. Yeah. Um, and her claim is this will close uh, or, or it will it'll fund her health care proposal, mm-hmm. but also it'll take care of some of the debt in a 10-year period or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
France is probably the most prominent example of, I think they, I read one thing, 42,000 millionaires leaving. Um, Macron, is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah, I don't try to talk like the people in it. Macron, yeah. Macron. Uh, so he um, finally just squashed the wealth tax. There are three. So you said people were leaving? Like yeah, the, leaving the exodus of 42,000 millionaires left France after they imposed the, huh. the wealth tax. Um, I'd be int- I can't wait to hear what John says about that. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is there were 12 countries in the 90s that adopted a form of the wealth tax and only three of them have that left because it just didn't work and some of the thought isn't just that um you know people leave but that it's just so expensive to actually police that kind of wealth and yeah. Yeah, because looking... people that wealthy can find a way to right. get around it so uh her her plan looks pretty comprehensive you know some of it would be like uh, if people renounce their citizenship to leave the country it's a 40 percent tax on everything huh. on your way out wow. um and there's a few other points. I just wonder, do you think that something like this can work? Um, I don't know. So I, I think this is a conversation. That for me, this is less of a, of a candidate conversation, more of a policy conversation. Sure. And we can talk about really the, the Warren Sanders lane here. Like, I think the, um, and by work, do you mean work to, to pay for all those things or to get them elected? Well, that's a good question. I don't. I mean, my opinion is nobody's going to actually get this done if they get elected. Sure. If there's a yeah. conservative uh, yeah. Senate, yeah. So I think um, having been a Republican for about as long in my life as I was slash has have been a Democrat, I can say the the real success of the Republican Party is that they've convinced the people who vote for them that. Um, that the Sam Walton and the um, the the Tim Apples, <laughs> the Tim Cooks, like the the mega billionaires, the Zuckerbergs, um, are the same as the small business owner. Hmm. Um, and so when you talk about like um, taxing them like on their profits, which I think, as John would say, and I tend to agree, you're actually redistributing the work that people the wealth that other people created for them um uh like the brilliance of the republican party and probably started with reagan um is that um small business owners read well you're gonna do to me what you do to these multi-billionaires um so i but i don't know a way to um to change the conversation around that like to convince people that um this is probably a pretty bold statement that I'm sure um, will get a lot of uh, pushback, but I kind of agree with um, whoever you know said um, we shouldn't have, I, I don't know that we shouldn't have billionaires, but I think my faith perspective tells me that um, when just a handful of people hold more wealth than everyone else combined, um, that there's something immoral about that. Yeah, um, and this is where Warren and Sanders just appeal to me is um, like for me, uh, and, and what what I appreciate, I think Sanders says, and maybe Warren as well, is everyone else is like, well, if we nominate you, they're going to call us a socialist, and mm-hmm. their point is, well, they're going to call us a socialist anyway. You know, they called Barack Obama a socialist. Sure, um, they'll call Joe Biden, who is the most conservative. And, and the economic policy, in some ways, is he probably more conservative than Trump is. Mm-hmm. They'll call him socialist. So I, I don't know how to get around that kind of strategy. 
Um, my last question about Warren, I suppose, is one about sexism. Um, I, I, she seemed to storm on the scene in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, she wasn't even running, was she? This uh, is just sort of... Yeah, well, you know, she was appointed by Obama, I think, before, like in 14, 12 or 14, as that would have been like 12 or 14, yeah. Um, at, you know, this new agency that she lobbied to create, which is a consumer protection agency. Are you familiar with this? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and he created it, put her in charge of it at the beginning. And then I think it was, I can't, it was either 14 or 16 that she became senator. Okay. Oh, but you're asking running for president. Well, yeah, I just, in the, sort of in the national conversation, this was the point I was going to make. Maybe it's just that I wasn't paying close enough attention. Um, there seemed, when I remember her in 16, there seemed to be a, a bit more stoic version of her that arose. Um, I, I noticed even in the debate, she seems to have like this particular commitment to smile. Yeah. And I wonder if she's and been told that. She's probably been told that because women are supposed to smile. Right. And 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 I think about, um, you know, the one thing Kate McKinnon, McKinnon has done is kind of pick up oh, this yeah. caricature of the grandma. Yeah. And like you can, the one thing I will give her credit for is that sort of the voice like, Hey, you know, yeah, like yeah. that part of the thing. Well, I will say if you could look back at some of her, like, uh, when she testified before Congress to, you know, lobby to create this consumer protection, she had that sort of okay. charisma back then. Um, yeah, she's always had that. So, I mean, we could talk about ageism here. And so I think it is a, a good conversation to have. Like, I think you can have a conversation about the health of a president mm-hmm. um, because what, what is she 70 she's younger than Biden and Sanders yeah so, I don't I don't know but still I think would be the oldest person elected possibly I think Donald Trump's like 73 isn't he? but but on the day oh yeah yeah okay um, but um, I'm not concerned about her health yeah um, and so I would say this about health um, I've been thinking the last couple few weeks like you know Trump uh, there was something that happened where he went probably to his, you know, annual visit to the doctor, but he did it kind of secretly. D- did you read about this? No, I didn't. Yeah, it was like three or four days ago. Um, people had just heard that he went to Walter Reed, and usually they make a big deal about those things. But um, as I was thinking about that, I thought, is as much as I have an issue with Trump, um, I think the him being healthy is like really important. Um, like I think he needs to be healthy throughout whenever he gets out of office because of the, the climate that we're in, the conspiracy theories that if sure. he were to have a health issue or emergency and God forbid have to be removed from office for whatever reason, our Pence have to take over the, the chaos that would be caused by that. Sure. That would cause chaos in a normal presidency. But in the times we're in, it would cause so much chaos now that I do think health of a president is, or health of a candidate is an issue that can be raised. For that issue, yeah, for that because reason. because of that. Maybe okay. more so now than ever. Okay. Um, I, I do like Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think at this point she has my vote. Yeah. Um, part of that is, uh, of the ones that can be elected, she seems to have the most of what I want. The last candidate we haven't talked about is Bernie Sanders, and to do that, we're going to phone in our friend John Harris, or John, John, <laughs> John Thornton. John, British John might have some things to say yeah, to you, but we'll yeah. talk to John Thornton. Thornton, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. John, let's do a little bit of your biography. Can you brag about yourself, what you've written for Sojourners, uh, Salon? You've written Salon? Uh, no, I have, I've not. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a pastor. Um, that's what I do most of the time. Uh, at Jubilee Baptist Church, we're a, um, a church replant in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, we just started back in September of this year, um, and uh, I've been on staff at the church, both at Replanted and now the, the new plant, uh, since since February. I'm the co-pastor of Missions and Outreach, um, and then I am also a writer, and so I've written for uh, Plow Publishing, for Vox, uh, and Sojourners are kind of the main main places where my my writing has appeared, and I usually write on something to do with pastoral ministry, politics, and theology, some somewhere kind of in between those three. Well, John, I wasn't going to mention that you're a pastor. I'm trying to reach the pagans, but since you've done that already, um, <laughs> can you tell us, to just real quickly, tell us what Jubilee's doing that's unique. Yeah, so... I don't care right, about your small yeah. groups. I want to know about your... <laughs> yeah, tell us yeah, your school classes. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, we only we try to just do the, the stuff that uh, that really matters, you know? Um, no, we uh, we are a church replant and, and are sort of born out of what we think is a, a real need in people's lives to just focus on their financial and working lives. Um, and so uh, the way we put it is that we worship, gather, struggle, and liberate together. Um, and so those are just kind of the four things that we, we do together. Um, kind of the most notable way that we, we talk about people's financial and working lives is that we're paying off each other's debts. And so, so far we've paid about $16,000 worth of debt uh, that three members had. Uh, we do that once a month in worship. Um, it's all been credit cards and it's been, we had a woman who took out a lot of credit card debt, uh, to pay for insulin. Um, we had someone that was working his way through college, uh, a little bit later in life and then lost his job about halfway through. Um, and then a woman that was living on or is living on disability in section eight housing. Um, and so for each of those, it's a way of exposing kind of what we think capitalism is doing to us. Um, and the fact that we as a church can uh, constitute our lives differently together. Uh, and so it's been really enjoyable. It's, it's led to a lot of uh, really interesting conversations with people. Uh, and we're, I, I'm interested to see the ways that it, it really like comes to shape our, our community's life together. Yeah, that's remarkable. Thanks for the work you're doing and, and for telling us about that. Um, so I, I kind of just a second ago alluded to where I wanted the conversation to go. Let's start with um, the the post I saw on your Facebook. You had posted the article. When is it, uh, Congressman Oman? Did I say that correctly? Yohan uh, yeah, Oman. Yeah, and had just yeah. endorsed Bernie Sanders, and uh, it seemed like there was a, a commitment at that point from Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez. And you had written, "How about these Bernie Bros?" Um, do you feel a frustration of kind of that caricature of the the Bernie supporter? Yeah, well, I think there was in 2016, and um, it wasn't necessarily unfair to begin with that that Bernie's supporters were um, mostly white men, and that were online, and that were uh, you know, that, that, and were like obnoxious about their support for him. Um, 
I think that may have been true early on because I think he kind of caught on online um, in 2016. But by the end of that, and then through the last four years, uh, his what we've seen is his support breaks down on lines of age more than anything. Um, and I mean, you see, like, uh, and so regardless of race or gender, I mean, he actually does a, a slight majority of his support is uh, women. And um, he's the only candidate, I believe, who, uh, again, I think it's a slight majority, but a majority of his support is actually minorities. Um, and that has to do with, and it's just, it's young people. It's just people, it's people under, it's 18 to 29, he's like crushes it with. And then 29 to like 45, he does very, or 29 to 40, he does really well with. Like, I mean, it depends on the poll, but, um, and it, it tends to be, women and people of color in in those groups um, that he does really well with. So, yeah, so the narrative of, like, the Bernie bro, um, I think it's kind of subsided. Um, he really is putting together a, a multi-ethnic, multiracial coalition of people. It just happens to be younger people. Sure, that's very helpful. I think to, to ask a follow-up question, and I, I can frame this in a way that helps set up the critique, but also is, is probably a little bit more fair. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because I think you would help potentially diffuse criticism I might get from the podcast. And what I mean by that, of all the candidates around, and I think this speaks to the, the Bernie bro thing, he's the one candidate, if people didn't feel like I represented him correctly, I will hear from. Um, and, and so maybe a positive way to say that is, why do you think he is garnering such fervor from his supporters? Because with every anybody else I've talked to, they look at a field of candidates and they kind of like a few of them. Bernie folks tend to know they want Bernie, and they have a pretty um, clear reason why. Yeah, and I mean, you can actually see this in like a lot of the polling is that um, a poll just came out, and it was like I think it was like seventy-one percent of Bernie supporters had their mind made up that like he was the candidate, and he was the only one over thirty percent. Right. So like, I mean, that's pretty significant. Sure. The, the, so I think there's a couple of things. I think it's, um, I, th- oh, I think it's, it's, it's two things. It's what he represents, which is incredibly unique to just the political landscape of the last three years. Um, and so I think he is a, a unique politician, um, in the principles that he's had. I mean, you can go back, you know, I guess I see it on my Twitter feed because of who I follow, but like these videos of him from 25, 30, 40 years ago, uh, like talking about policies and talking about political matters that are now just to the left or the like mainstream position. And this guy had them in the eighties, you know? Um, so I think it's that he's just really, really unique. Uh, and I think the other thing is, is like the, um, because he is unique and then because of what's unique about him is a, a sort of oppositional um, approach to politics. Like everyone knows who Bernie's enemies are, right? It's the millionaires, the billionaires, it's the elite. Um, like there is a sense that politics is about fighting and like about fighting and winning. Um, and so I, that's where I think that that comes from. Um, and then a, a kind of defensiveness gets born out of that. Sure. 
That's helpful. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it, I mean, I think that's where it comes from. I think it's probably a little more right than wrong, but um, that's that's what I think drives it. Okay, so I think this next thing's related. Uh, I had seen on a, a Facebook thread a, a mutual friend of ours um, suggests, and I don't remember what the main, what you had posted to start with, but that electability isn't a real thing. Um, can you say a if you agree with that notion, and b what electability is, and then I'll I'll have follow up questions based on how you answer that. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, so if we look back at 2016, right? Like the whole one of the main reasons. Uh, to vote for Clinton in the primary over Bernie um, was that Bernie wasn't electable, right? Like, he, no one's going to go for a socialist. He's too far outside of the mainstream. He can't. He can't win. And what happened? Like, the electable candidate lost. So it's not. And there's all sorts of arguments about the you can make about the campaign that she ran, about the electoral college, all of that. But like, it didn't work. Um, I would go even a step further and just say we can't know. Like, you, you don't know how these things are going to play out. And so part I guess, of the reason she lost was like, who could have foreseen the FBI, right. you know, the heavy FBI announcing an investigation? And the emails, John. Yeah, well, but, but I mean, but, but well, I mean, we could have actually seen that. You were like, supposed to laugh. Knew this was going to be a liability. Um, so I would just go so far as to say, like, who's who knows what. Like, who knows who is going to win or how these things are going to play okay, out? I see now. Just go based on principle. Yeah, yeah. Just just do what you think is right. Vote for the candidate you think is the best. Um, and and lose doing that. Like, yeah. w- like why not? Yeah, I'm trying to... I, I, as I've been thinking about this, like, I, I go back and forth on this because obviously, you know, kind of the narrative is Biden is the most electable candidate or, or you know, of the Democrats. But when I think back to all of the presidents that I can remember, and my memory goes back to Reagan's first term, um, I have some recollection of Carter, but mostly Reagan. None of those, none of the presidents that's been president since I can remember, except for George H.W. Bush, fit like a, like the the mold, like that um, you know that the typical kind of establishment safe type of candidate. Right. Like every one of them, you could say that this person, for whatever reason, was unelectable. Right. Yeah. Well, and and like Clinton and I mean Clinton and Obama both ran on these like transform, you know, like these big. This is a new era. Of of, polit- I mean, like the safe picks for the Democrats the last few times have been Gore, and Clinton. You know, like the extension of a, a particular era of politics. Um, but mostly it's just like, well, who – you just can't know these things. And there's actually like a, a, a pretty good, um, I think, like theological case for this that like these matters are just so complex and outside of our hands um, that trying to game them out, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's not worth it. You just can't know. Like you can't know what who will win or why. It'll make sense in hindsight, but we don't we aren't afforded that beforehand. Um, I mean, I do think if you are going to make the electability argument at this point, a poll just came out that showed that um, Bernie is the only one beating Trump nationally right now in the, the Democratic primary. Johnson. So if you do want to make the electability argument, then Bernie's your guy. Since you started talking theology, did I just hear you admit you're an open theist? <laughs> 
All right, uh, let's I not digress. Okay. <laughs> well, neither does God. So. Um, right, right. Yeah, whether or not God knows. I mean, that would be the that's that's the real question. Okay, John. Um, yeah. I, I had mentioned this earlier to Craig after the debate on Wednesday uh, when Klobuchar was pulled into the what is Chris Matthews thing called the spin room or something hardball hardball yeah. or whatever. Uh, he kind of he divided the candidates up between Klobuchar, you know, Booker, Buttigieg, and Biden, and then he said on the other side of the Democratic Party you have Warren and Sanders, which I think most Americans intuitively get well that pay attention get that divide. But right. you have stated um, pretty explicitly you think I don't know if you'd say there's a divide, but there's a pretty big difference between Warren and um, and Bernie Sanders in you, in your post, which for the record. Um, you noted I usually talk pretty, what was it, snarky about politics? Um, I, I just want to say on record I really appreciate the, the sincere nature of that post, but you had pointed to um, debt, housing, and the wealth tax. Um, I suppose you could say you see a $40 billion difference, but how, how critical is it in your mind that we elect Bernie Sanders and not Elizabeth Warren? Um, well, okay. I think I feel like there's two questions there. Um, like the difference between the two, uh, I think is one in terms of you could think of in terms of ambition, like policy ambition, and then um, and then approach, and then that'll get me to like the like why I I think it's critical to for Bernie to win. Um, so like the policy ambition, the point I was just trying to make is that. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren is the plans candidate. She's got plans. Uh, you know, they're really thought out. They're really good, um, and they're really progressive. Uh, and Bernie's plans are just as thought out, and they're more progressive. So, like, she wants to cancel student debt uh, up to forty-five thousand dollars in student debt for everyone that makes, I think, a hundred thousand dollars. Every household that makes a hundred thousand right. dollars or less, right? Um, Bernie just wants to cancel it all. So, like. That, that's just more progressive. And even if you argue like it's not going to pass or you have to negotiate or you have to move backwards, like fine, like let's just start with the more aggressive one and negotiate back. Um, same thing with housing. Bernie wants to build more uh, housing units. Uh, if you just look at it in terms of raw numbers, like his housing plan uh, has more housing units. Um, what was the other one that I said? The, oh, the wealth tax. Yeah, like Bernie's tax would, would bring in more revenue, would tax the wealthy more. Than Warren's. Yeah, so that just, was my comment about the $40 billion difference. Right, right. Yeah, so just like in terms of, you know, you line up the plans, let's say they got everything done that they wanted to, Bernie's would be better. Um, but then I think there's also like, I think there's the approach. And, um, you know, I think there's a way of seeing Bernie's campaign as um, – in many ways similar to Obama's in 08, except I think he um, he really believes in continuing a grassroots movement and grassroots pressure. And so I think I think the central problem for Warren um, is corruption. And, and she says this like all the time, right? So central problem is that um, the rules of the game are basically like they could be good. But you need someone to enforce the rules and to keep people, um, you know, keep keep the more powerful people from kind of interfering with the uh, the like refereeing of the policing of the rules. Um, I I just don't think Bernie thinks about the rules as much as he does just like raw power. Sure. Um, that that 
you know, I mean, he, he has been saying it more and more, like, if there is class warfare, like, the working class should win. Um, and that's, I mean, I just can't imagine Warren saying that. Um, and so I think that's a difference of approach. And I think that explains why he has spent so much, I mean, what he's done to make Medicare for all a central, like, a thing that they can't get away from. I mean, the, the he has single-handedly built support for universal single-payer Medicare for all health care. Um, and he's done that in, in ways that I think reveal, like, what his candidacy, like, what he would do as president. Um, so the reason that I think it's it's critical for him to be the nominee and, and be the president is that, like, I think he would he would lead and build the movement of working people um, against capital and against the, the capitalist class that we, that we need right now. Um, I think it would be working in reverse a little bit. Like I would rather have the movement and then just find the leaders, but you work with what you're, you're given. And so I think, I think that would be a very different approach. Um, I think he means it when he says he would show up and, and take on the democratic party and, and senators and Congress people in the Democratic Party to push for his agenda. Um, my next question is a little bit different, um, and it's admittedly not fair. And perhaps in asking it, I should spend more time kind of on working, understanding his biography. I have no doubt that he's intelligent, brilliant, that he has the plans, that he has kind of the robust character to endure the hard things. Um, I'm a little suspicious that he will be able to garner bipartisan support for some things, but I'll give him as much chance as anybody. The one thing, and and, and I'll frame it by talking about Barack Obama, um, I think one of the most important moments for me um, in his presidency was what I read about in the moments after Sandy Hook. Um, and, and I think, you know, you're a pastor. You understand kind of the complex nature of that moment and how leadership interjects itself into that moment. And I don't even mean publicly. I mean in classrooms with parents weeping yeah. with their children. I don't have reason to believe that Bernie couldn't do that. But um, he, he does come across as gruff. Um, I, yeah. I don't think his str- strong suits are going to be being a chaplain. Um, do you think that sort of intangible is something that he can learn to do well if he doesn't already possess those skills? Yeah, I think he does it. Um I think the problem is it doesn't um, it doesn't show up on the debate stage and it doesn't show up when he's interacting with the media. Did you um, say you think he does have it? I think he does have it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I would, um, you know, anybody that's listening to this or I, you and Craig, like maybe um, check out the town hall that he did in West Virginia. Um, this was at, this was shortly after the election. Um, and Chris Hayes did a really good job of, of moderating this. Um, so he's in a West Virginia town that went, you know, after what percentage for Trump. Um, he's been doing these things, and you can, you can find footage of them. And I, I think they're pretty remarkable, um, where they basically just do, like, an open mic at his events. And, and people talk about what it's like living without health care, um, you know, what it's like grinding away in a working in a coal mine uh in west virginia um i think what you see is that when he is talking to working people suffering he's deeply sympathetic 
Um, I think the problem is that he's incredibly antagonistic, again, towards most of the media uh, and, and definitely on the debate stage because uh, he, he realizes, like, yeah, there are people that, like, absolutely ought to be taken to task. And there are interests that are working against the people that, that he cares about. But, I, yeah, I think if you go look up – like I said, that West Virginia town hall is – it's pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, he gets a whole room of West Virginia Trump voters to applaud universal health care. And this is in 2016. Hmm. Um, he even says, like, you know, um, that, that, like, we're going to get, like, I understand that losing your job is a scary thing. And if we're going to get away from coal, that's, that's going to mean you're going to lose your job. So we have to provide you another job that's better, rebuilding your city and your town and your infrastructure so i actually think he possesses that it just doesn't come through uh, in it, it only comes through in particular instances a lot of which don't um either play well on the like mainstream media or fit the kind of narrative um at the at the debates well that's helpful i'll, I'll start googling for that youtube video um this evening craig do you have any other questions for john uh John, one of the things we brought up um, in talking about the fact that there are three candidates, and then if you count Trump as the fourth, um, who are uh, old, for lack of a better term, um, and we talked about ageism, uh, I brought up this idea that, you know, I don't think anyone's age matters. Um, I do think, though, in our, like, in not just polarized times, but times where there's so many like conspiracy theories and so much uh, like like just really distrust like everything is caused by something that's not that thing. Like I think it's really important that our candidates be healthy. Um, like I was telling Josh, I think it's important that Trump stays very healthy through the end of his presidency because um, if he had some sort of health scare that the conspiracy theorists would just go crazy. Um, I'm wondering if you would speak to that kind of idea of, of age, ageism, health. Yeah, I mean, I wish Bernie were 35 years younger. <laughs> like, um, hey, I know someone who is probably 35 years younger than Bernie. <laughs> well, so... Um, His name's know, John like, Thornton. What, well, yeah, I wish... <laughs> Maybe 45. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I don't know. I mean, I think you just evaluate these things on, like, as you see them. Like, it, it seems like to me, like, obviously I had the heart scare uh, and the, uh, had a heart attack. Um, he seems to be doing fine uh, afterwards. I mean, I'm, it's, it's not that his age isn't a factor. Um, but, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm more interested in just the policies and the politics and trust it, it almost goes down to the electability thing like yeah. you know any of these candidates could get hit by a bus or something i mean they probably would but like you know any uh, life is fragile as it is um and so like i'm not sure what the i'm not sure what the worry is in terms of age because uh like i still trust bernie and who he would pick as a um vice presidential candidate uh, and the movement that he's starting. And I, I can't, I don't know if he's going to live through the end of his presidency or not. Like, I don't know why that, I, I'm not sure why that's so 
like how important that is compared yeah. to him just i mean like if you were like seemed in any way incapable of fulfilling the duties of the office uh that would be one thing yeah. um and that's i mean Biden definitely worries me in that regard, but not because he's old, right? But because of the words that come out of his mouth and the orders that they come out of his yeah. mouth in. Um, and so, yeah, I'm I'm not like I don't know. I don't know how to worry about that or sure. what what factor it should play. Um, I do think it's important that you know, like he got those endorsements. I mean, I don't think there's a, a higher profile endorsement. Uh, than AOC other than Obama. Um, in terms of and Democrats. that happened. Yeah. What's that? In terms of Democrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, it, I'm not sure what... I mean, she's obviously on board. And, you know, he uh, he said he's, like, eating better and he now has a, he had a blocked artery. So, like, he's having a lot more fun than he did beforehand. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm just... Mostly, I'm just not sure how how to worry about it or how to factor it in. Sure. John, that's helpful. I know we're probably about to have to wrap up because we've, we've been on the phone for a long time. Hey, I want to say, you know, people often say no one's mind has changed on social media. Um, <laughs> and I tend to dis- disagree with that because a lot of people that I am friends with have slowly over time changed my mind. And I just want to say you're one of those people on a lot of things. Oh, I'm not quite um, to where I can vote for Bernie Sanders. Um, but there's no way in hell I would have been able to say, I think I can vote for Elizabeth Warren, um, if it weren't for the influence of people like you and other people that I read. So I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, well, I, I really appreciate that. That's, um, I've kind of figured this, this stuff out and, uh, to a degree, I've chilled out a little bit more. Um, I do miss, I mean, I do miss the community of your, your Facebook posts, um, and maybe that's another, that's a whole nother podcast, maybe of the changing nature of social media as yeah. through the lens. Let's not of, do that one here. Certainly. As uh, of Craig's Facebook I, I'll say one more thing. And I, um, I'm sorry. I, I feel like I'm the host now <laughs> closing this up. Um, uh, one of my friends who I grew up with, uh, is actually part of the team that's managing Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, uh, and I've reached out to him to try to, uh, uh, get you to meet him. So I'm still waiting for that to happen. Um, okay. John, so I'll let you know if I hear from him. Awesome. Well, that'd be, uh, that'd be really cool. <laughs> John, without explanation, if you could yep. pick Bernie's VP, if he got the nomination, who'd you pick? Um, I don't know. I don't know who Nina Turner would be very interesting. Um, oh yeah. The, yeah. Nina Turner. Uh, yeah. That's a great, great one. Compared, I mean, if I had to guess, I think it would be a younger woman of color. I mean, younger than, well, I mean, like, I don't think it would be an older. By the way, just person. so you, just so you know, Josh and I looked at each other like, because we don't know who Nina Turner is, but. We'll Google that too. But, oh yeah. Nina Tur- so Nina Turner is from Ohio as right. a co-chair of this campaign. A, a woman of color. She, she oftentimes opens his, uh, rallies. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's not, I mean, I think the obvious, I think he views, more importantly than the, the vice presidency, I think he and she, uh, AOC, um, view, view her, uh, AOC, as kind of the heir to his his sort of political legacy. Um, she obviously cannot be the vice president because she's younger than I am, uh, like 30. Um, 
but I think there, I think there is a world that where Bernie runs, wins, uh, and sort of sets things up for her to run in 2024. But that's all, you know. Who who knows? That's like the electability. It's all fan fiction at that point. John, thanks so much for uh, what you do and uh, for being on our podcast with us. Yeah, I appreciate. It. I'm looking, looking forward to hearing it. All right, I'll uh, I'll let you know when we, we go live. Okay. Nice. Thanks, buddy. Bye, John. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Craig, do you have uh, any closing comments? Uh, no, we talked for a long time. Yeah, we're an hour and 15. People are going to be committed to this one if they Either want Either that or you can split it in two. Well, there you go. Hey, thanks for being a guest on Curious, and hopefully we can do this again as we get closer to the election. Yep.